Our reading for our sermon this morning is based on Genesis chapter 8. Then God said to Noah, come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Bring out every kind of living creature that is with you, the birds, the animals, and all the creatures that move along the ground, so they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number on it. So Noah came out together with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives. All the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground and all the birds, everything that moves on land, came out of the ark, one kind after another. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done, as long as the earth endures seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. This is the word of the Lord. And the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. We just heard the end of the flood account. That's the start of the flood account. God looks down at, at the world that he had created and the world that had been taken over by corruption and violence, and hatred, and strife, and he looks and he goes, that's enough. I'm done. And so he says, I am going to wipe these people off the earth, and he goes to Noah, and he says, Noah, I want you to build an ark, and he gives Noah the plans to build the ark, and then he gives Noah the power to build the ark, and when the time comes, God tells Noah, okay, it's time to get on the ark, And Noah and his wife and his sons and their wives all get onto the ark. And God himself closes the door behind his people. And the rain starts and water comes up from out of the ground and the entire world is engulfed by water so that the mountains, the highest mountains in the world are underwater as well. For 40 days, 40 nights it rains. And then for 11 months, water sits on the earth as God causes it to slowly recede. And then finally, the ark, it rests on dry land. And that same God who closed the door to the ark behind Noah tells Noah, okay, it's time to get out. And the door opens, and Noah gets off the ark, and he makes this burnt offering, And God says, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. Beforehand, every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. After the flood, every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. What changed? What changed? Why would God have done this? 
If he knew that nothing was going to change, if he knew that evil was going to get on the ark, evil was going to be crushed by the waters under the ark, evil was going to get off the ark, and evil was going to live with us today, then why on earth does God send the flood if he knows nothing is going to change? Because in his words, he's talking about the entirety of the human race. The entirety of the human race is standing right in front of him, all eight of them. And he still says every inclination of their heart is evil from childhood. Those eight survivors, still evil. God, what was the point? What was the point of doing all of that? Of putting the world through all of that? If we were just going to be facing down evil when it ended. Kind of demonstrates that there's just that lack of, that lack of change, isn't there? Those, those words are, are strikingly similar. They're, they're unbelievably similar. That there was, no, there was no change between the people that got, got onto the ark and the people that got off. They were sinners then, they were sinners now. And that's just how people are, aren't they? No matter what we do in our lives, that evil heart stays with us. I think one of the times I've seen this most clearly was there was, there was this kid. I was a, I was a part-time early childhood, uh, part-time supervisor for this, this school. It was the after-school program. And it was my part-time job at the seminary. And it was Benjamin. And Benjamin knew you weren't allowed to go up the slide. You were only allowed to go down the slide. You know where this story's going. First time, Benjamin, we go down the slide, not up the slide. Oh, yeah, 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 I know. Second time, Benjamin, if you don't stop going up the slide, you're going to be sitting next to me for a little while during this recess. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I didn't know. I didn't know. The third time. All right, Benjamin, right here. Sit right here. And so we sat there and we watched the rest of his kids, the rest of his friends play, and I can kind of see him. He's sort of squirming and he's just getting excited because he wants to go out and he wants to go play with his friends. And, and it's just really starting to bother him. And the, the 10 minutes or so comes to an end and I turn to him and I go, Benjamin, what are we going to do? Are we ready? Mr. Crass, I promise, I promise, I promise, I'm not going to do it again. I promise I'm not going to do it again. It's not going to happen. And I let him go, and I turn my back on him. And I kid you not, three minutes later, I turn around, and I look at the slide, and there's Benjamin halfway up, looking me in the eye, eyes as big as saucers, knowing exactly what he's doing wrong, and still doing it. The inclinations of the sinful heart are always evil all the time. And yet, and yet God loaded those sinners on the ark, didn't he? Even those people that he knew, he knew weren't going to change. He knew that, that even though Noah and his family would be rescued from the ark and they'd be so thankful to him getting off the ark, he knew that it wasn't like they were going to be done sinning. He knew that those evil urges, those evil thoughts were still going to be there. And yet he goes out of his way 
to rescue them. He puts on this whole show. He, he does the whole ark thing to rescue eight people. Eight sinners. Eight people that he knew would continue to rebel against him. Eight people that he knew would go on to sin over and over again. Eight people that he knew someday down the line would cause the corruption of the world that we see around us today. The sin before the ark was the same as the sin after the ark. Corruption and the hatred in God's sight. And yet God did it for them. He plunged his hands into time and space and he rescues these eight people from all of the chaos, all of the tragedy, all of the sinfulness of this world. Even though every part of their sinful human nature would have loved nothing more than to just continue on their way, God still rescues them. He still rescues these these people that have nothing for them. That's what causes thanks, isn't it? I read a story about a, a Hurricane Ian survivor. I've been reading some of those stories all week. I don't know if you, if you have. But I read a story. It was about a mother-in-law and her son-in-law. And this mother-in-law, before the hurricane came, said, I'm fine. And the son-in-law called her, and he said, you really, you really should get out of there. I will come and get you. I will come and pick you up. We will get you out of there. We'll get you to a safe place so that you won't be in danger. And she says, no. I've got my generator, I've got my food, I've got my water, we're good here, don't you worry about me. And he continues to urge her, he continues to urge her on the phone, and eventually she just hangs up. And she says, no, I'm not coming. And the water came, and the flood waters rose, and panic began to set in. And sure enough, while that is happening, That son-in-law is getting into his truck, driving 10 miles into danger, getting out of his truck, getting into a boat, driving that boat through power lines to make it to her front door, kicking down that front door to go and save her from the terrible decision that she had made. That's how God deals with sinners. No matter how much we get in the way of our own salvation, no matter how much we get in the way of our own relationship with him, that is how God has decided to deal with sinners, to rescue them, to spare them, often from the chaotic world around them, but so often from the chaotic world that lives inside of their heart. That chaos, that original sin, that urge, You know, when we're talking about the inclinations of the human heart, we're not even really talking about the actions, we're not talking about the words, and we're really not even talking about the thoughts. We're talking about those urges. Those urges that sometimes we can't put into words, but it's an urge that only wants to look out for ourselves, to care about ourselves, to serve ourselves. No matter how much it hurts those around us, If God tells you, don't you dare go up that slide, you can only go down it, then our first thought in our human heart, our sinful human heart, is to go, I am going to go right up that slide. 
and I don't care who it hurts in my life. I don't care if it hurts me. I want to do it because my God told me not to. And then God kicks down our door and he rescues us. Maybe some of you know that time in your life when you became a Christian. You can actually remember it. Some of us were baptized as children and brought up in the church, but, but others of us remember that moment in which God kicked down the door of your life and he said, you're coming with me. That's a God that spares. Who rescues not the ones that deserve it. He rescues not the ones that ask for it. He just goes out and rescues. And that's what sets the table for this entire account as we look at the thankfulness that Noah has to God. Noah had to have been terrified. Throughout this entire situation, Noah had to have those moments of doubt. Put yourself in Noah's shoes just for a second. You're loaded up onto the ark, this football, fi- football field-sized box that's coated with, with pine and tar and whatnot. And for 40 days, you hear the power of God exacting his wrath on the world. The rain comes down, and yes, the water gushes up from the bottom. And in those first few hours, those first few days, maybe what you're hearing around you are people being destroyed. Animals being destroyed. People that you knew. Loved ones. Extended family. Friends. All being wiped out. You get off the ark, and the entire world around you just looks fundamentally different. It doesn't look anything like what you saw when you got onto the ark. You look around, and how is that not traumatic? How does it not, how does it not hurt your heart? How does Noah not just see a God who is full of wrath, towards sin, who hates the presence of sin, and who has all the power in the world to do something about it. And then he looks back, and he sees the ark that he just got off of. And he sees that rescuing, that sparing love of God that rescued him when he was in the situation, when he had been completely encircled by, been completely encircled by unbelievers when he and his family seemed to be the last believers on planet Earth, God chose to spare them, to load them up on God's ark, and to to bring them through this time of, of wrath and of punishment. And then he starts to make some promises. He makes some, first, a promise to Noah and his family when he says, be fruitful and multiply on the earth. You can imagine Noah being just a touch nervous about getting off that ark and continuing to try to build his family. Noah's kids and their wives look around and they see the devastation and they know all of the loss of life. And you could imagine them saying the same things that sometimes we hear from people in our world today. I don't want to bring a kid into this. And yet God says, be fruitful and multiply. And with those words, we hear a promise from God, don't worry. You can go out and you can do this with my blessing. 
And then he moves on to his next promise. He says, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, and never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. God didn't need to make a promise like that. God very easily could have decided that he was going to leave his options open for how he was going to deal with humanity. He didn't need to make a promise to himself. He didn't need to make a promise to Noah. He didn't need to make a promise to us that told us that he wasn't ever going to deal with humanity in such a way again. But he did. He takes that powerful hand and places it on Noah's heart so that he can calm him. Extra compassion. And then he finishes with one more promise. God says, as long as the earth endures seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, will never cease. You get off the ark, trees are down, things are destroyed, everything looks different, and maybe if you're in Noah's shoes, you go, this world isn't going to work the same way anymore. Maybe you start to wonder if, if the seasons are still going to be there. You start to wonder, what does my future on this new world, this, this destroyed and rebuilt world, what does it look like? And God says, don't worry. Harvests are still going to continue. I'm going to continue to make this world work in such a way that you and your family and your offspring will be able to be sustained by it was another promise of God, another blessing that he gave Noah just to settle him down, just to calm his heart. Because as we all know, the sun doesn't rise unless God says, get up. Our lungs don't take in breath unless God says, breathe. The seeds in the ground, they don't grow unless God says, grow. We don't wake up in the morning unless God says it's time to get up. God was making a promise to Noah that he would continue to satisfy the desires of every living thing, to continue to sustain his creation just like he promised to do in the Garden of Eden. All of these things can settle Noah down. And so Noah makes a sacrifice. And it's a big one. God had had Noah load up a certain number of animals onto the ark. The ones that were considered unclean, not really for, for eating or for sacrificing. They went two by two onto the ark. But God had Noah lay aside some other animals, the clean ones that could be eaten, that could be sacrificed, to have more, more than two on the ark of those. And as Noah gets off, he decides it's time to make a sacrifice. And instead of being worried about how many animals are left in the world because he can kind of see them all, he goes, no. God's taken care of me in this world this far and God's going to take care of me in the future no matter what. And so he sacrifices in their entirety what few animals he had left that were extra. It's a huge sacrifice. It's one that recognized a very close relationship between God and his creation. It was one that was done out of pure joy and thanksgiving. I remember in high school, 
I broke a classmate's iPod Touch. It was worth a few hundred dollars, and the story as to how I broke it isn't important. <laughs> I broke it, and I knew that I didn't have the money to repay him. I was a very poor high school student, and I didn't have the money to take care of it, and I certainly wasn't going to be able to take care of it without my parents figuring out. And I remember calling my dad, and I said, hey, look, this is what I've done. And I was expecting a little bit of a chewing out. I was expecting some finger wagging. I was expecting something other than what I got. And what I got was grace. It was my dad looking at me and going, he can't take care of this himself. So I'll do it. And that feeling of gratitude that washed over me, that this, this problem had just been taken care of and I had nothing to do with taking care of the problem, that gratitude is something that I will, will never forget, that feeling of utter relief. That's joy. That's thanksgiving. That's realizing all of the things that God has given to us in this life, that he has given us all of our stuff, that he made all of those promises to Noah about life after, after the ark on this world. And he gave him all the promises that he was going to continue to provide for him, that he was going to continue to love him. But then on top of it, Noah recognized that God had much bigger plans in mind for him. That he'd been rescued from something much greater than a flood. He'd been rescued from eternal destruction. And it's that, that gratefulness that drove him to recognize the relationship that he had with God and make a sacrifice. And it's that joy that we have knowing that our God has our backs both in this life and the life to come. That he's taken care of a problem that you and I couldn't fathom as to how we would possibly take care of it. That's what causes us to be joyful. We don't give sacrifices to God by, by giving burnt offerings anymore. No, instead, we hear in 1 Peter, Peter's talking about a new type of sacrifice that we absolutely can give. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship. Our whole lives. It would be all too little just to thank God for those big blessings that he gives to us. No, we thank God for every little thing that we notice and every little thing that we don't notice. We live a life of thanksgiving to God when, when things are at their absolute best, when we are riding high and it seems as if God is allowing nothing to go wrong in our lives. And we thank God when we're in the pit. When it seems as if, as if things at home are deteriorating. When it feels as if your health and your breaths are deteriorating. We give thanks to God because we know that he has a much bigger deliverance ready for us. That he's ready to save us from the chaos and the anxiety and the terror that this world has to offer. 
Noah was rescued. Noah and his family were, was rescued from a world of corruption. Maybe there's some times where you look at God and you go, God, when are you going to rescue me from this world of corruption? He already has. Because he's allowed it so that all of the small things in life, all of the issues that come up, all of the things that we go, God, please spare me from this. All of those things are small potatoes compared to the hell that he spared us from already. That's what drives our thanksgiving. So be thankful. No, not in that way. Not in a law-driven way. Not in a pastor told me I'm supposed to be thankful kind of way. Not even in a God tells me or demands of me that I'm thankful kind of way. Be thankful because unlike so much of this world, you have something eternal to be thankful for. You have something that other people would dream of having. Real peace, hope, and assurance. And if you struggle to find thankfulness in your life, perhaps try this. Give some thought to all of those sins in your life. I think of all of the things that I've done wrong before God, before my family, probably already before my church, I think of all of those things, then I try to, to tabulate it up. And I realize that those are those things. Every single thing I'm ashamed of, those are the things that God has rescued me from. Then no matter how big that list gets, no matter how ugly those things on that list are, God's pulled you out of that chaos and restored you to be his child. Thankfulness comes from recognizing just how far up a crick without a paddle you are spiritually and recognizing the lengths to which your God came and bailed you out. It's in that grace that we can live our lives of thankfulness. Amen.